Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. It has been since September the 22nd since we have done a podcast episode. My apologies, and welcome back to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This week we're going to be talking about uh, infant baptism and how most infant baptism is actually not for the remission of sins, at least as practiced by various denominations. Before we get into that, why have we not been doing any podcasts recently? Well, I was doing a sermon series, uh, the Gospel Series. Some of you that listen to this are very familiar with the sermon series I was doing at the Chapel Grove Church of Christ. I was doing a lot of study for that. I couldn't be interrupted by planning and recording podcasts and doing all the editing side. That takes quite a bit of time. So I, I stopped doing podcasts for just a few weeks, I thought. Well, since then, I've been writing a book, which is unrelated to the gospel series that I was preaching. And I'm not ready to announce what my book is about, um, but I've been engulfed in that and doing research, doing now I'm currently writing it. Uh, and hopefully in the future months, I'll be able to reveal some details about this book that I'm writing. But if this gives you any indication about, here's just like a teaser you can try to do some detective work here. I've been spending quite a bit of time studying on the subject of uh, infant baptism. And in the process, I've learned that most churches that baptize infants are actually not baptizing them for remission of sins. They're actually baptizing them to put them into a covenant relationship with God. We'll talk about this more in the main dish when we get there, um, but that's really what we're going to do. Now, in the future going forward, when I do podcast episodes, I've pretty much just decided that we'll do short episodes when it's just me. Um, so this episode should be shorter than usual, and then if I interview somebody, I'll, it'll be you know your regular 45 to, minutes to an hour. Uh, hopefully I'll have on my brother-in-law, Mike Hernandez, soon. I talked to him. I said, hey, I want you to come on and talk to me on the podcast about being a Christian nurse. If you aren't aware, go to the website 5minutebiblestudy.com, and I recently wrote an article uh, called 10 Years as a Christian and a Nurse or something like that. Um, You can go on there and read about my experience and some of the temptations and trials and difficulties that you'll experience if you have any desires or maybe you are in the nursing profession. If you are, this will give you some type of solidarity with other Christians who are going through the same things and know you're not alone. Uh, otherwise, it'll help you see some of the benefits of going into this profession, but also realizing it's not for everybody. But nonetheless, as with every profession, we must sanctify our work, just like everything else, to the Lord. And how do we balance those two things? That's what that article is about. Hopefully, Mike will be able to come on soon. We can line that up. Uh, I don't think he knows that I'm putting this out there publicly. <laughs> anyway, um, so here soon, a voice from our sponsors, and then we'll get right into the main dish. This episode is brought to you by ChurchMomsForChristianSingles.com. Are you older than 12 years old and still unmarried? You need a church mom to help you out then. At SaveSingles.com, we have a whole staff of church moms to get you where you need to be. They'll ask you every single day, why are you still single? To remind you there's something wrong with you. This will inspire and motivate you, no doubt, to cure this terrible disease of singleness that plagues you. We also give great motherly advice like, you gotta get them young so you can train them the way you want. Aunt Patricia will send you a reminder every Sunday that she has someone she wants you to meet. If you're approaching 30, this is a must-have resource for you. Visit churchmomsforchristiansingles.com to create your account and start getting Church Moms advice today. 
Uh, that's one of my favorite fake commercials that I've done so far. I knew I had to do a rerun, so I went with a good old faithful Christian Singles or whatever that fake website was that I mentioned. Uh, okay, so here's to the main dish. We're talking about infant baptism and how infant baptism is not usually for remission of sins. Now, there's a word that maybe you've heard of before. It's a big word. It's called pedo-baptism, if I'm even saying that correctly. Pedo-baptism. P-A-E-D-O, baptism. Um, this is a word that simply means infant baptism. Pedo is uh, a transliteration from the Greek word for ch- child, and um, just put that with baptism, and there you go, infant baptism. This is a word that I heard and I, I saw referenced in church history that I had read for many years, but I didn't really know what it meant until I looked it up. Well, pedo-baptist is not a denomination in itself. It's actually a belief. It's a belief in baptizing children. So anybody that baptizes children is a pedo-baptist, meaning they believe in this. Um, However, like I said before, not all of them baptized for the same reason. This was brought to my attention recently by my brother, who was, uh, I don't even know what we were talking about. But nonetheless, he brought it to my attention. I don't know if you knew this, but not all people baptize babies for remission of sins. That kind of struck me, and I was like, wow, really? Is this true? So I started looking into this, and there is, um, I don't know that they all use the same terminology, but there is a practice called covenant baptism. And covenant baptism is the practice and belief that when baptizing an infant, it is actually for the purpose of baptizing them into covenant relationship with God, like unto circumcision in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, we'll, we'll get into more of how how circumcision leads into this idea of covenant baptism in just a little bit. What I wanted to do first is I wanted to uh, talk about the traditional belief, the one that you've probably long held, that actually baptizing infants has always been for remission of sins. Well, traditionally, that's where the practice came from. The, The doctrine of original sin, the idea that all humans inherit the sin from Adam— so spiritual death from Adam. Um, people teach that doctrine from Romans chapter 5. Um, that's where the Catholics got the practice of baptizing infants, actually for remission of sins. Now, I don't like to just say things um, assumptively, if that's even a word. And so I want to read to you from Catholic dogma. Now, you may or may not be familiar with the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was a Catholic church council. It took place... It wasn't like one meeting. It took place from 1545 to 1563. And this council was specially convened in response to the Protestant reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others who were contesting and making creeds of their own in response to Catholic theology. So the Catholic Church, the Pope, decided that they need to that they needed to respond to this and kind of put into writing updated decrees of what is Catholic theology. It addressed everything, including baptizing infants. And within that uh, council, section 5, first decree, fourth statement. And by the way, I'm getting this from (laughs) www.thecouncilofTrent.com. The whole whole document is up there. You can look at it. 
Uh, This is kind of dry, and I'll interpret it for you when I'm done reading it, a short paragraph. If anyone denies that infants newly born from their mother's wombs, even though they be sprung from baptized parents, are to be baptized or says they are baptized indeed for the remission of sins, but that they derive nothing of original sin from Adam, which has need of being expiated by the laver of regeneration for the obtaining life everlasting, Whence it follows as a consequence that in them the form of baptism for remission of sins is understood to be not true, but false, let him be anathema. Now I'm reading that to you, and even me reading it, I had to read it like three times to catch all the double negatives in there, but essentially what they're saying is that if you believe that a child is born saved and does not need to be baptized for remission of sins— you're, you should be accursed. You should be anathema. It says it a little bit more clearly down later in the paragraph here. For by reason of this rule of faith from a tradition of the apostles, even infants who could not as yet commit any sin of themselves are for this cause truly baptized for the remission of sins that in them that may be cleansed away by regeneration. And there you go. So that was uh, Catholic dogma as early as the mid-1500s. Going back even further to Augustine, who was a Catholic um, clergyman, he said uh, here, "...such infants as die without being baptized will be involved in the mildest condemnation of all. That person therefore greatly deceives both himself and others who teaches that they will not be involved in condemnation." So Augustine's saying, yeah, they'll be condemned with the least amount of condemnation, but nonetheless they will be condemned. And anybody who says otherwise is deceiving himself. Um, that's put a little nicer, but still says babies are going to hell if they're not being baptized for remission of sins. I also looked up more recent statements of faith. In 2007, the Vatican website, www.vatican.va-blah-blah-blah-blah.com, um, they released a statement that questioned that maybe um, this is a little bit deeper than we thought before. Here's a quote from that website. Our conclusions is that the many factors that we have considered above give serious grounds for hope that unbaptized infants who die will be saved and enjoy heaven. (laughs) So now they're like, uh, more recently at least, that maybe there's some hope that these babies who are not baptized for remission of sins will actually be saved. So they're holding out hope now, and it keeps getting closer and closer as they realize how ridiculous this is that unbaptized babies, innocent beings, are sent to hell if not sprinkled or immersed in water. Okay, so that is the traditional long-held practice that, yes, baptizing infants is for remission of sins. Over the years, and Protestant, the Protestant Reformation brought forth men who uh, contested Catholic teaching and practice. And today, as far as I'm aware, um, a lot of those churches that sprung forth from it, the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, the Orthodox Church, which actually that didn't spring forth from the Reformation, that was long, way back um, before, but um, let's see, the Presbyterian Church, uh, all these denominations practice infant baptism to one degree or another. Uh, Anybody can correct me on that if I'm wrong. But uh, I wanted to do this little short episode on this to help correct in your mind any misconceptions you might have of denominations that practice this, and hopefully uh, you will not misrepresent them anymore. Let's focus on the Presbyterian Church. 
So the Presbyterian Church, I do know, in fact, from reading uh, quite a bit of literature on them, and it varies from uh, theologian to theologian, from Bible scholar to Bible scholar within the Presbyterian Church. But overall, they do practice infant baptism, and they do it not for remission of sins, but again, I referenced earlier, they call it covenant baptism. And this is the idea that when the baby is being baptized, they are being baptized into the covenant, the new covenant. And also, um, only children, only infants of adults who are baptized into the church, only those babies can be baptized into covenant because there is a connection and there is a prerequisite that their parents are covenant members, and they can't actually be baptized into the covenant without the faith of their parents um, being exercised in baptism. Um, so that is a prerequisite that's pretty uniform across the spectrum, as far as I understand. Uh, I'm getting quite a bit of my understanding of this practice from Thomas Schreiner and I think it's Stephen Wright. Don't quote me on the last author there. They wrote a book called Believer's Baptism. Now, I'm not even sure what Thomas Schreiner is. He may be a Baptist. I'm, I'm not sure. But he, this book is actually a proposition for um, not baptizing infants and that to baptize somebody, which they don't believe is for remission of sins anyway, but nonetheless, to baptize somebody, they have to have already professed their belief in Jesus Christ. That's called believer's baptism. Um, that's actually what they're proposing in that book, but they do have a whole chapter explaining the contrary position of baptizing babies into covenant. Now, um, a representation of this belief, I want to take a quote and give it to you from Stephen Wellam, which comes from this book. And um, Stephen Wellam is explaining this doctrine of paedobaptism. Um, I'm just going to read this quote to you, and then when we're done, I'm going to highlight three statements within it that bring out the uh, understanding of why they do this and why it's important that the child is baptized into covenant. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, and he's actually quoting from Randy Booth, who is actually a advocate of covenant baptism for infants. Okay, so here's actually... Stephen Wellam quoting Randy Booth. Along with most defenders of the Reformed view of paedobaptism, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, does not entail that the infant is regenerated, nor does it guarantee a future regeneration. That is a kind of presumptive regeneration. Rather, as Booth contends, the covenant sign was God's indication that its recipients were set apart for his special blessing and use. They therefore stood in need of cleansing, regeneration, and justification. The benefits of the covenant were to be appropriated by faith in the promised Redeemer. Hence, to be a child of the covenant does not necessarily guarantee one's salvation. Rather, it makes available to the infant all the benefits and privileges of the covenant, which must, in the end, be appropriated by faith. Otherwise, the same quote-unquote covenant child will be found to be a covenant breaker and thus stand under the covenantal curse namely the condemnation and judgment of God. Okay, so let's break this down. There's three statements in here that make this clear exactly what's going on and what they believe about covenant baptism. The first statement he said was, just because an infant receives a covenant sign in the Old Testament or the New Testament, so in the Old Testament, the covenant sign of Abraham's covenant, which is actually not the sign of the Old Covenant, by the way. The sign of the Old Covenant was the Sabbath. I believe that's Exodus 32, maybe it's Exodus 34. You can read the sign of the covenant was the Sabbath. Um, but nonetheless, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision, right? You see that in Genesis, I believe it's 17. 
Um, well, anyways, just because an infant receives the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, uh, they're referring to the sign of the covenant being circumcision with Abraham, and they believe that the sign of the new covenant is baptism. Randy Booth says, doesn't matter if they've received the sign, this does not entail that the infant is regenerated. And so here you go. When he says that, he is confirming that this is not for re- remission of sins. They're not saying that the child is born again, that they are saved by this baptism, so forth. Now, there is a lot of difference of opinion as to whether babies are um, innocent and will go to heaven if they die within this uh, theology of covenant baptism. What I can tell is most of these scholars believe that uh, the covenant sign that they believe is baptism, when applied to the infant, does not regenerate them. Nonetheless, by the sovereign grace of God, if they were to die before they made a profession of faith, they would be saved just simply by the sovereign grace of God and the blood of Christ applied to them. Um, but anyways, so here confirms they do not believe this is for remission of sins. The next statement later down in the paragraph is when he says the benefits of the covenant were to be appropriated by faith in the promised Redeemer. So these babies are put into covenant relationship because their parents were baptized, right, and put into covenant. Therefore, the babies are put into covenant, and this affords them certain benefits and privileges. Um, it's much like in the um, book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, and let me get the exact verse here. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Later on in chapter 9 and verse 1, Paul says, For I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brother and my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain, here we go, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of a law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternal blessed God. All those benefits that he just lists there, the glory, uh, the cloud above the tabernacle, the covenants, the giving of a law, the promises of God, all those stand to confirm what Paul said earlier in chapter 3 when he said, what advantage has the Jew? What profit comes to them from circumcision? They, The Jews, by being born into covenant relationship with God, more or less, by being circumcised the eighth day, had a lot afforded to them being within this special people. It didn't necessarily mean that they would be saved. They had to be faithful to the covenant, right? But that being in that covenant afforded them close proximity to all these blessings and gave them a higher degree or a higher chance of actually being saved because of their close proximity to these things. And... um the privileges that that would afford. That's basically what these scholars are trying to explain the benefits of being baptized into the covenant for these babies. So there's some variation of belief in there, but generally speaking, the belief is that baptism puts the child in the covenant and that affords them certain privileges that hopefully they will eventually, when they grow up, profess faith in Christ, become one of the elect in this way, and then they will enjoy the benefits of being in the covenant. That those who grow up and don't confess faith in Christ and don't bear that out by their fruit will not enjoy. Now, do I believe all this? No, I don't believe all this. I don't believe that 
Baptism is the sign of the covenant. Nowhere in the New Testament is that indicated. In fact, explicitly, Jesus says the sign is the cup of the New Testament. Um, in Luke chapter 22, that's the sign of the New Covenant, and we are reminded of this sign. It's brought to the forefront of our minds every first day of the week when we commune. But um, anyways, I'm just explaining to you this view of baptism. I think this is helpful. Hopefully it's interesting, but more or less I hope it's helpful so that it, it helps you not to misrepresent people and assume that they're saying one thing when they talk to you about how they believe infants should be baptized. Don't uh, create a straw man and, and cast some argument on them that they don't actually believe in, and that's what you're very liable to do if you were like me. You might have at least had that in your head. I don't think I ever personally did that with anybody in conversation, but I will say that in previous—I gave a sermon on total depravity, and in that I touched on infant baptism a little bit three years ago about— and I did misrepresent um, denominations that actually believe in covenant baptism and not baptismal regeneration that uh, Catholics believe in. And that's the idea that the water has certain uh, regenerative power and uh, re- removes the original sin of Adam and the infant. Well, uh, one more piece that we will go on to explain before we're done with this is all of this elaborate scheme of baptizing babies into covenant and where they get this from. You're like, where do they get this from? There's nothing in the New Testament that indicates this, right? Well, there is a um, another branch of theology which you have to subscribe to in order to get to this conclusion that baptism is the sign of the covenant and that babies need to be baptized into the covenant. Um, this is called covenant theology, which again, I'll also admit, I don't, I'm not an expert in covenant theology. I'm actually pretty new to kind of the finer details of what it is. I've heard of it for some time. Um, covenant theology is basically the idea that in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve fell from, from grace, that God entered into a covenant with all mankind known as the covenant of grace. And this covenant of grace uh, c- continued all the way from that point and continues today in the New Covenant. They also believe that in the Old Testament, whenever you read about these major covenants like the Noahic Covenant, and the sign was the rainbow, the Abrahamic Covenant, the sign was circumcision, the um, Mosaic Covenant, the sign was the Sabbath, and then the New Covenant, I just said the sign is the cup, but they say the sign is baptism, that all of these covenants are really one and the same covenant. Now, if you're at, you know, alert is going off here and you're like, whoa, what, how do you even get there? I'm not defending this. I'm just explaining it to you. There are some major problems with that, and you have to pretty much just come to that conclusion before you read Scripture and then fit everything into your your little schema after that point. It, there's a lot of problems with that. Um, but nonetheless, I'm just explaining to you the idea. So they believe that this covenant of grace um, runs throughout Scripture and that the new covenant is just a new—how um, how shall we call it? It's just kind of a new phase of the covenant of grace. And in the Abrahamic covenant, the sign was circumcision. All children were circumcised the eighth day and entered into the covenant in this way. And in the new covenant, they go to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, and read that a passage where Paul talks about how the circumcision of the heart um, occurs whenever we are buried with Christ in baptism. And there they, they try to propose that um, 
that baptism replaced circumcision as a sign of the covenant, and therefore, by nature of the fact that the New Testament never mentions anything about bab- uh, baptizing infants, that because the sign of the covenant is perpetuated, the fact that it says nothing must imply that um, children should be baptized by the replaced sign of circumcision, quote-unquote, baptism. That's generally the rule. Now, this is nothing new. This isn't like a New Age belief, covenant theology. I've been reading this week some of the Campbell-McCullough debate, which was a debate between Alexander Campbell and a Presbyterian preacher. I can't remember his first initials, but the last name was McCullough. McCullough was a Presbyterian preacher who believed in baptizing infants um, into the covenant. And in that debate, if you want to read some of the finer arguments about from McCullough on the position that um, babies are baptized into covenant in the New Testament and how baptism replaces circumcision, uh, you can read that from McCullough's position, and Alexander Campbell does a great job responding to that and, sh- and shows a lot of the holes in that um, belief. He gives on one part of the debate 14 contrast between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. One thing I read this morning that was interesting, he pointed out how before Abrahamic, the Abrahamic covenant and the sign of circumcision there, he pointed out how um, before that there was no covenant ceremony or ritual to place children into the covenant, this supposed covenant of grace that supposedly existed from Adam to to Noah and then to Abraham and so on. That's interesting. And so all of a sudden, all babies are placed into this quote-unquote covenant of grace by circumcision, and then we're supposed to believe that this continues into the New Testament. That seems to be a pretty major problem. Um, I won't go into all of the contrasts. I would recommend to you um, the the Campbell-McCullough debate And uh, also, if you want to know more about circumcision of the heart and what Paul is talking about in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12, I would highly encourage you to go on to my dad's website at willofthelord.com, willofthelord.com, and type in to his search bar, circumcision, and you will see an article pop up, and that will say, circumcision made without hands, Colossians 2, 11 through 12, what does this mean? Go read that. Um, my dad's material on that is very good. I would recommend it to you. And if this is really just creating more questions as to what that really is and what Paul's talking about, well, there you go. I've given you some resources to go and study. But what I wanted to do in this episode is simply just explain to you the common practice of pedo-baptism or covenant baptism of infants. And um, hopefully now you have a little bit more under your belt in terms of understanding of religious denominations. Well, I hope that wasn't too dry for you today. I've been having a difficulty not only finding the time to record new podcasts, but also finding something that's short and sweet that I can give in a shorter time period like this right here. I have a few other things on the back burner that I'll probably go into in the next episodes. I think maybe the next episode I'll talk to you about the problem of the Pharisees and what actually made them um, kind of bad. <laughs> We'll talk about that probably in the next episode. That's a little a little uh, excerpt from a study I just gave recently at church in my gospel series, called What is Legalism? So what made the Pharisees legalists precisely? There was four things that they did, 
but not all of them made them legalists. We'll examine that maybe in a future episode. Well, that's it for today, and log on next time. Share the podcast, subscribe to it, uh, like it. If you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts, rate us. Give us a good rating. That helps the podcast get out there. I appreciate your support. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.